Hey, it's Laura. Welcome to TMST. So it's a familiar saying when we talk about recovery, but it's true. Recovery is all about breaking cycles. And what we don't usually acknowledge is that the cycle belongs to the whole family, not just the individual. So this week's guests, Jeff and Deborah J, know this better than anyone. Together, they've been doing pioneering work in the areas of family recovery and intervention for decades. Their book, Love First, is the essential work on the family recovery dynamic. It is now in its third printing, and it's a really powerful roadmap for gathering the power of family and friends to help a loved one accept treatment and recover. Deborah's book, It Takes a Family, is a groundbreaking introduction to structured family recovery. And in it, she demonstrates the interconnectedness of addiction inside a family structure and provides mountains of good news and hope, which we so desperately need, both for the person who is suffering and all the people around them. The Jays also happen to be married, and they've made the family health and recovery their life's work. This is one of those episodes I'm so thrilled to bring you because I've never had a great answer to how do I help a loved one beyond my own experience. I've never had a solid resource to send them, a place to go, and this is that. So this is one of those episodes that needs to be shared with the people you know who are at their wits end. Jeff and Deborah are the real deal, and we are so glad to welcome them to TMST. If you care about these kinds of conversations, I hope you'll become a TMST Plus member. The paid members are the engine behind this project. The membership helps us pay for the costs of making this show and keeping it coming your way. You can find the link in the show notes or head over to tmstpod.com. Five, 10, or 20 bucks a month makes a huge difference. And thank you to the hundreds of folks who have become TMST Plus members. You are making it possible for us to bring you this conversation. Enjoy. Hi, Jeff and Deborah. Welcome. So happy to have you. It's so nice to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for you. having us. So I want to start in kind of an obvious place um, that's really important because I want people to be related to each of you and understand how you work together uh, as a couple to on intervention and family dynamics of addiction. So who focuses on which aspect? Well, we're kind of a team. Yes, we yeah. really and are. And we used to both focus on you know, uh, the family and how they can help the addict get uh, into treatment. Right, on the intervention side. But now yeah. Deborah has branched out further and developed something called structured family recovery, which really takes the whole family as well as the addicted person into long-term stable recovery. So in doing this now, after years of kind of working together on the intervention side, we sort of have separate jobs. But, you know, it always crosses over, sure. you know, because it's all part of the same picture. That's right. How did you hone in on doing this, this work? So it was way back when we both met when we were working as counselors at, uh, for Hazelden, at Hanley Hazelden in uh, West Palm Beach. Yeah. We were a staff romance. 
Oh, and, uh, <laughs> yes, right. And after we were married, you know, I'm an intervention story myself. That's how I got into recovery. And um, we really realized that intervention at that time, the early 1990s, was terribly underutilized, not understood, and hadn't been manualized at all. We have to understand it wasn't a household term yet. You know, we weren't talking about interventions for everything. People weren't talking about intervention. If you said intervention, you know, no light would come on in anybody's head. They weren't accustomed to that. And even when I started working for Hazelden and I had a family member at the time I was concerned about, and I started asking, what can I do as a family? No one had an answer for me. These were Hazelden people in those days. There were so few people who did this, really. So, I mean, yeah. a handful. If you're looking at people who did it nationally, you're talking about a handful. Wow. But, you know, Jeff and I working, you know, when you work, you know, as we used to say, in, in the trenches. The trenches. That's the word I'm trying to think of. In the trenches with alcoholics and addicts, you get to know this disease in a way, you know, with an inpatient program, day in, day out. You see this disease operating. You know, yep. even if you've seen it, Jeff's in recovery, I'm on the family side in recovery, you see it. And one day we just had an epiphany. We were home, we mm -hmm. were married, we were home mm -hmm. and we had this epiphany and we said, you know, the big missing link in our field is the family. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all starts with the family. Everybody's right. a counterpart. Everybody's a partner in this disease. Everybody yeah. is affected. It just affects people differently. And we have to learn how to leverage, leverage that. And that's what launched us in this whole direction, this whole everything that we've done since came from yeah, we, that one moment. We really took the idea that when the family's in crisis, you've got to take the focus off the alcoholic mm -hmm. and put it on the family and friends and figure out how are we going to organize? How are we going to come together? How are we going to use the power of love and concern in a very specific and organized way so we can break through that, you know, the normal defenses and denial and sure. bring the person to a moment of clarity where and, they will accept help. And, you know, you still hear it today, don't you? You know, Alcoholics Snacks don't want help. They don't want help. But what I like to say is alcoholics and addicts can't want help. It's the nature of the disease. They cannot want help. But there is a real person way down deep. And that person will often say, you know, after they get over everything, they'll often say, you know, I have so much gratitude because they did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Yeah. Will you say more about they can't want help? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. This is a disease. The way it affects the brain, this is a disease that won't let the victim reach out for help, but not only won't let them reach out for help, it, it causes them to push help away, right. you know, and there is this inability to see things in the way everybody else can see them. And that drives the families crazy because yeah. they can't figure out what's going on. Because what, like when I was drinking and drugging, that's my solution. Ergo, it can't be the problem, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so when families yeah. are talking about the problem, you're yeah. talking about their solution. Who's the problem? The family is the problem to the addict. That's right. right? Yeah. We're talking about the alcohol. We're trying to get in the way of the alcohol or the drug, which is a lifeline. Mm -hmm. So we become their problem. We don't understand that. You know, we live it, but we don't really understand it because it seems so obvious. Oh, it's yeah, the bottle, totally. it's the pill, it's the powder, you know, and, yeah. and the addict doesn't see that. They don't right. see that. 
So I want to get something out on the table that that is a I want to say it's a sticking. It's not a sticking point, but it's like a a strong preference for me, and it has been since I got sober. And it's mm-hmm. the the labels out addict and alcoholic. And I know yeah. like you need something to say to 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 say this is the person who's struggling, right? But I, f- I personally find because of the cultural stigma around what it means to have an addiction, especially a substance that, you know, use addiction, substance problem, there's just, it sounds so punitive to me. Well, l- let me say a couple of things about that. And I know Deborah will want to, too. Sure. Yeah, please. Uh, I mean, first of all, alcoholic is a, a term that was, you know, brought up to break stigma because it was a medical term. <laughs> so now maybe we have to, you know, do we have to change it every, you know? And then the other, uh, another point is, this is the way people in the real world talk about it. They say, you know, my brother's an alcoholic, my brother's an addict. So in our writing, we really want to use the language that people really were use. Now, these days, people want to say, oh, let's change it to substance use disorder. That's, you know, a, a kinder, gentler, whatever. It's like, is anybody actually fooled by that? Does anybody actually feel better about that? Because it's such an uh, a mouthful, it's really hard to say. Well, and I, I want to say too is that, and and I get it. You know, there are a couple reasons we use this language. One, it's the language of the twelve step programs. So we want when you change languages and you have two languages, you can have a real, you know, create a real barrier because there's a language crash. Understood. But right. one thing I talk about with stigma is. There is a reason. It's not, it's the behavior when people are addicted is not good, typically. You know, addicted people in your family cause a lot of pain and heartache and fear. And not changing the name isn't going to change that experience. So what ends up happening is stigma always attaches itself to the word. So like when Jeff said alcoholic was originally designed for the same reason. And now here we are again. So we keep chasing words, but the stigma actually doesn't go away. It um, might seem like it on the surface, but it does not. We would be much, much, much better. It would be much better to put our efforts into eliminating the stigma of getting help and of people talking about it in our families to be able to say, you know, we're suffering, you know, from Jeff's mother having dementia. We don't fear telling people she has dementia. You know what I mean? And if right, we could, but there's we could, it's, it, there's not there's not the stigma around dementia that there is. There, and I'm not yeah. arguing with you. No, it's no. just something that comes up. I I had like a um, and I don't want to split hairs or anything, but I think this is important because it's what you're saying. I I completely get. And you need to use specific language so you can actually say what you need to say. Like there's a right. there's a yeah. practical necessity of just calling something a label and consistently doing that. What you're saying, Deborah, is so true. The behavior is, we'll call it ugly, and really um, destructive. It causes a lot of destruction. That's why Mm -hmm. you have the jobs that you do. And there can be this sort of ongoing punitive sound about, oh, the addict in my family. Oh, that's the addict forever. You know? I just, I see that keep a lot of people away from 
looking. One of the reasons that, that happens is because we've always excluded the family from the recovery process. And that's why mm. in the book, It Takes a Family, um, Structured Family Recovery completely changes that and it's super positive brain. So for instance, in a lot of family programs today, what they want to do is they want to put you in front of your family member, have you tell your family member when you're, everybody's in crisis and everybody has disturbed emotions. Addiction always causes disturbed, disturbed emotions with the addict, with everybody. You know, anger yeah. is rage, you know, fear is anxiety. I mean, everything is just blown up. Everybody's terrified. Mm -hmm. Everybody's held hostage. And now we're going to bring you and do a lot of negative brain stuff. And even the addict telling the family member, you know, when you do blank, I feel blank. What I need from you is blank. That can be really helpful in a healthy relationship. Jeff and I are both sure. long time in 12-step programs with recovery. We don't have to set up boundaries around each other. We're trustworthy. If we have a little something, we can have a conversation. But when you sit in front of family and you, and then the family is saying to the the addict is saying to the family who's gone through it with them, you know, when you do this, the negative brain stuff, is it speaks to what you're talking about. But it's just like somebody said to me once, you know, be, you know, calling people unhoused, is that going to make them not become an other because it's not homeless? You know, if we take it out of our field, on the no, same hand, it. at the same hand, I think anybody yeah. who is... Um, suffering from this disease, recovery, or otherwise, they can use any word they want. You know, refer to me as this. Anything and and I want. actually think it's really mm -hmm. important, and I don't want to go crazy on this, but I think it's really important to renormalize those terms like alcoholic and addict, because you've got to understand there is a big bias against 12 steps and AA and all that in the ivory tower and the research community and stuff like that. And they would really like to get rid of it if they could. And so part of that has to do with the nomenclature and saying, mm -hmm. you know what, this is bad. But then what kind of disproves that is that that means that somehow AA is a self-stigmatizing organization, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There are. It's, it's such an interesting question. We could spend the whole hour on it. But I just want to say something because Jeff said, you know, first of all, as a president and CEO of a treatment center said to me some years ago, I'm like, what's the whole thing with AA? He goes, well, nobody can make any money off of it. But mm -hmm. for listeners, they should all know that the Cochrane Review Collaborative, which is what the medical world uses, they are it. They're the top when it comes to research. They did a huge meta-analysis of all the research um, in the world, the best of it. On addiction? Yeah, on what AA, works and what doesn't. On AA. Yeah. And it works Got better it. than any other treatment. And Harvard was involved, Stanford was involved, there's a great video on this on YouTube called Does AA Work, I think. But what they found is it's better than cognitive behavioral therapy. It's better than motivational interviewing. It's better than any other treatment for long-term recovery. So mm -hmm. the field has to kind of come back to that if, you know, they're truly going to call themselves evidence-based. Because of the work I do, I get so many messages um, from family members and friends who are facing addiction in, in their families. Parents who are concerned about their children kind of dominate those messages, I would say, but also, you know, partners, siblings, parents. So let's talk about some first principles. What, what do people need to understand about the family dynamic in addiction? The way we come at it is a little bit different than that. And that is okay. to say to families, you have a great deal of power to change the situation if you come together as a group 
with the right plan and you take the time to plan and prepare and actually deal with this. There can be so endless- it's action first. Yeah, there, there can we don't be, try to change anyone's attitude. Action right, first, because there can be endless permutations about the dynamics of addiction in the family. I mean, you can go kind of endlessly around and around with that. But regardless of the dynamics, those who are closest to the addicted person, family members, friends, colleagues, etc., peers. Uh, if they will come together, get organized, really learn more and understand how they can take action, that's what makes the difference. Not trying to dissect what the individual uh, foibles in this family system might be. So it's like we have developed, you know, like in the 90s, you know, and refined a process. And when you put that process in place with the family, you know, it's unbelievable. They start coming together because everybody, you can imagine everybody's on a different page. Everyone has a different idea. You know, he just needs to grow mm -hmm. up or, you know, just don't understand him. You know, there are all sorts of things going on. The sister who talks to him all the time, the sister who won't talk to him. And the thing about it is, is that it's in action. And I did a couple of boot camps with Stanford's Behavior Design Lab. I mean, we put this in place way before, but really made me understand why it works because things that create lasting change, it's not changing people's attitudes. It's setting up behavioral expectations and that will change attitudes. You know, keep it really simple, set up positive social norms. Um, and in this whole process, the thing is, you use the family to do all of that and they come together and I will tell you something. Like I always say, don't call families dysfunctional. That's wrong. And I learned that in my mm. field and it's just dead wrong. They are in crisis. Any one of us in a similar crisis with limited resources as they have had will act exactly the same way. They will blow your socks off any day of the week when you give them something meaningful to do. And it is, I have never gotten used to how amazing families are. And believe me, they understand what's meaningful and they understand what isn't. And they're fed a lot of stuff that isn't meaningful. And then they say, Talk oh, family. Talk about some of that. Yeah. Talk I mean, some of that it's just I stuff that, that they know. Well, it doesn't help them. It's like, well, yeah. you're giving me a bunch of information. What do I do with it? I get home. I don't know what to do. Oh my gosh, she smells like alcohol. I don't know what to do. They understand it. And the thing about it is, is that, also, another thing in our field, they say families just don't stick. I say, oh, no, they just don't stick families to stuff. Families just don't stick? They don't stick. They don't they won't stay stick with the process. Anything. No, yeah. they're not sticking because they know this isn't going to do them any good. So Jeff and I are so mm -hmm. focused on what works, what's practical, what the steps are. And, and the thing is how we preserve dignity, how we preserve a road back and with structured family recovery, then we give them. Because we'd always talk about it's important what happens before treatment with the family during treatment and after only we never really had anything for after. Yeah. And now this positive brain thing that brings people together so fast. I, 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 we did a podcast on the stories. It's just unbelievable how families and attic uh, come together. It's Explain just amazing. Explain what you mean by the positive, but you mentioned it a few times, the positive, I know because I've looked into your books, but <laughs> right. I want people to understand the positive brain stuff. Yeah, because first of all, you have to understand the brain tends to um, skew negative because the brain's job is to keep us alive, right? That's number one. Mm -hmm. So the brain is always going to remember what cave the bear lives in, right? So anything negative, the brain lights up really, really brightly. And those are very durable memories. Positive mm -hmm. things, the brain doesn't light up so brightly and they can bleach out over time because they're not 
they don't keep us alive necessarily. So the thing mm-hmm. is, is that when neuroscientists tell us for every negative, you need five positives. And I'm thinking they're talking about negatives that are a lot less negative than what families have gone through with addiction, right? Like, so maybe for addiction, you need 10 positives or 20. I don't know what the number is. So, but the thing is, we can't come together without kindness. If we're not kind to each other, if we're not engaging each other with positive brain, positive things, I don't mean Hallmark cards. We love our Hallmark cards, but I don't mean that. I mean, meaningful stuff that's super positive. Like, give me an example of, of, a, of what that might look like in an interaction. Okay. So like, this is a very structured program and it's really simple. So like families get together. But we should be talking about intervention, I think, instead of- Oh, well, but just a minute, let me okay. just finish this. So the thing is, there are a few things, there are different things they do, but one thing, there's a topic every week and everybody just shares their thoughts about it. We're not So like week four, for instance, is forgiveness. We're not saying, I Mm -hmm. forgive you. We don't expect people to do that. There are readings, little short readings, everyone reflects. And it's all positive. It brings you into a positive place to think about this, right? Throughout the whole year, it really follows the trajectory of 12 steps, all these positive brain topics. Everyone shares. Everyone's listening to each other. And it's more complicated than that, but it's constantly lighting up the brain, positive brain. Oh my God, I can't believe what she said. I, One addict in treatment who joined the first time from treatment, because it's all done on conference call, started crying her eyes out after she heard her dad talk. She goes, never in my life have I heard my father talk this way. People get to this place. Because he was saying kind things. Yeah, but it was just smart. He had But he was reflecting on what what forgiveness meant to him and how it's applied in his life, what he's getting out of the reading, how that ties into step one and what he's experiencing going to Al-Anon and stuff like that. And she's like, wow. And he's only talking about himself, you you see. Nobody's talking. So all the talk is sort of self- Self talking. And then everybody learns from everybody else. At the end, people will say- Never in our family have we ever had an experience where we shared like that. And everybody well, yeah, learns. No, it's not common. <laughs> no, and everybody right. learns this act of listening because there's no crosstalk. So people aren't jumping in. You're uh-huh. not allowed to talk about other people. You only talk about yourself. And it starts creating. You get the feeling, this structure, it's a common language, cools down the system. Solution-based type talking or like? Solution-based because exactly. everybody's involved in their own recovery program outside of it. Their little assignments mm. they bring back, like what they learn from a sponsor in a meeting. Everyone hears it. Everything is positive. Negative brain, we don't ignore, but you take that to your recovery program, your sponsor, your meetings. I see. You don't take it to your family because what good is that going to do? So Why? this isn't the therapy session. No therapy. For everybody. There's no it's, therapy. Yeah. Zero therapy. I'm so glad you asked that question. Zero therapy because what happens in therapy? Do we go to positive brain or we go to negative brain? And and it's it's important to say though that what Deborah is talking about is on the other side of treat after the intervention after, after the, the treatment, treatment after everything so we're like right yeah let me reorient and and get us to the intervention so you as I understand Jeff you at twenty six you suffered you were suffering <laughs> you had this utterly yeah. debilitating physical symptoms and you were contemplating suicide how did how did intervention play a part in your story? And then maybe we can talk about the specifics of an intervention. 
Well, my addiction had taken me down to a really low point. I mean, I was sleeping under bushes in the city parks out in California. I was homeless, mm. penniless, bleeding ulcer, bleeding colon, transient neuropathy of the legs. I was just shot, you know, 26. And um, a friend of mine had committed suicide, and I thought, that's perfect. That is exactly the right idea. Sounds like a good idea. And I, I didn't <laughs> tell anybody because I was absolutely serious. It was uh, kind of a very serendipitous or miraculous uh, uh, family intervention of an unusual kind, but a family intervention that got me into detox and ultimately into treatment and ultimately into recovery because I didn't understand that I could get better. I really thought I was at the end of the road and there wasn't any point in trying to go further. So yeah. without that intervention, I don't believe I'd be sitting here today. And mm -hmm. so that, of course, motivated me as, as I got further into the field and then ultimately met Deborah and we're working together to say, you know what, there's a way to really bring this forward in a powerful way, which had not been done yet, and uh, make this more available and accessible to families. And so that's been yeah. our great passion. And it has to be more than just getting the person in treatment. You can do anything. You can like beat them over the head and drag them into treatment, right? It has to be this whole process with the family that brings them together and starts this recovery process right from the intervention forward. So let's talk about that. What is your guidance on what circumstances constitute the need for an intervention? Sure. When a person is experiencing repeated negative consequences in their life as a result of their drinking or drugging or whatever their compulsive process addiction mm -hmm. is, whatever, repeated negative consequences in any area of their life, relationship, financial, legal, medical, da, 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 da. And they just keep doing it anyway, again and again and again with impunity. That really demonstrates a loss of control. Secondly, yeah. if what they're doing is really a violation of their value system. Not mine, not yours, not somebody else's, but it's something that really violates who they are. And everybody knows it. Like then driving it, drunk with your kids in the car, for instance, right? right? Yeah. And, and so that is another thing that really tells you that there is loss of control. That person isn't driving the bus anymore. So that's when you might need to do a good structured family intervention and help them get treatment. And you have to realize it's the families that are reaching out for help. And they don't reach out when the problem is small. They don't even reach out when the problem is big, but not too big. They reach out when the problem has gotten so big that they're actually, you know, they're taken to their knees and they're terrified. They're terrified of losing this person. Nobody does an intervention because they don't love their addicted family member. You have to love that person very much to do this. Mm -hmm. um, yes. What are the requirements that the family has to be willing to commit in order to do this? Like, what expectations do you set with them? Oh, that's such a good question because we really take it step by step. So we don't ask people to make a commitment to do an intervention on Jeff right now. Okay, what okay. we really ask them to do is, first of all, to learn more. If, if for example, if I'm working with a family uh, professionally, first of all, I just want to gather them together. These days, it's probably going to be on. So, soon. someone calls, someone contacts you, however. Someone, they contact. yeah. remember, you might be talking to the person, like maybe it's like a type A personality. We've got to do this right now, but we've got to bring a group of people together and everybody has a different idea. 
right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first mm -hmm. thing you have to do is you have to get this group all on the same page. And there's a science to it, and there's, but more there's an art to it. Because some sure. people are angry. They're even angry you're involved. They resent the fact you're in the room. And that person has got to be your BFF by the end of the day, right? Right. And when they become your BFF. They are. They're, they're all over the place. Some of them, yeah. you know, they really want to save Jeff. Others just want to shoot him. You know what I mean? And then you're also, you know, they're, my, <laughs> they're over it. Right. And there might be somebody else who has an addiction in that group. But what you I know, like and they to do, can be, like sometimes you can't do without them. Some, but you're, you know, it's a tightrope, and you need somebody mm -hmm. who's skilled, knows how to do assessments, has clinical background because it's complicated. So you're not well, causing more harm to the family than good. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. You know, we have one goal here, put something into the world that helps all of us figure out how we can have a better week. And we think that the best way to do that is to keep the pod ad-free so that all of the work goes toward making something that's useful for you instead of hustling to keep advertisers happy. And this is where you come in. TMST Plus is the membership program that helps to keep this show going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are super important because they help to pay for the show's production and distribution costs. It's pretty sweet, makes a difference, and you can make it happen with a one-time gift for as little as $5 or $10 or $20 a month. If your situation is such that becoming a member doesn't work, it's all good. We hope you enjoy the show, maybe share it with a friend or two, and we hope you check out the playlist that we put together every week on Spotify. Just search the playlists for Tell Me Something True. It's free, and we're thrilled that you're here. And if you could become a member, well, you can find the link in the show description. Head over to tmstpod.com. Takes less than two minutes. And thanks. I don't, you don't need to give me a number, but I want to make this like a, a reality for people who might actually need to do this. Yeah. What resources do they need to have? It, and, and is this something that needs to happen in real life physically in the same room? Do you, does it sometimes happen virtually? So the, first of all, for many families, not all families, they don't necessarily have to hire a professional interventionist. We wrote love first in such a way that people can read the book and follow the directions. We've also put four and a half hours of free podcasts on our on our website, Intervention Workshop. That'll so it's we not put, a, it's not a money thing. We in the put sense, endless you know, resources on our website for free, and we talk to anybody. What they do for no need to do is initially. at least have a core yeah. of people who care enough to come together, learn more, and start to understand what possible strategies they can bring to bear on this uh, situation. Okay. And so the idea is. Take it step by step. You don't have to, you know, eat the whole cow, right? Or just mm -hmm. let's just so, have a know, hamburger. We might and start with a family out. with like a what we call yeah. a strategy session. Let's just get all the pieces of the puzzle out on the table. Let's just strategize. What can you do? What are your resources? Sometimes they have to scrape resources together for treatment. We don't want them to use all the resources on intervention, right? So yeah. 
we have lots of strategies. Well, what can we do? Well, listen, read the book back to back because the book is a complete roadmap. Plus it cools down the system when they read it. You know, everybody's like, oh my God, yes, yes. So everybody starts coming together just because they read it. The chapters tend to be a page and a half, two pages, three pages, because everybody's in crisis. You don't have an attention span. And, and, and you don't it, want 32 it, page chapters. It it's easy to, to it, read. It tends to stop that family argument of, no, we should do this. No, we should do that. Right. It's like, no, we're going to follow the book. We're going to follow yeah. the directions. And that's kind of the first step sometimes because people are arguing so much about what the heck are we going to do with that crazy yeah, Jeff? Yeah, they're just in so much pain. And they all, and, it's kitchen yeah. table solutions. Everybody's got a different solution. and But what feels right is usually wrong and what feels wrong is usually right. But the thing is, mm-hmm. if they can read it, let's say they have no money for an intervention. If they can get together, they can read the book. They can. I think you can get it on Audible now. They'll know more than most doctors in this country by the time they end reading the book on what to do. Yeah, and then they can do things like do a strategy session with us, or you know, any skilled, really, really skilled person. But you can figure out what they need. Like, what help can we give you? Is there somebody in your life? Is there a clergy person that can come in and do this with you? That can, you know, how can we make it ha- happen for people? Obviously, if you have the resources. To hire a clinician, uh, clinical interventionist, that's great. Sure, It's better. And sometimes you have issues that are extraordinary and you need somebody, right? So trying to figure that out. Just a mediator of some kind. You need a mediator. You need some kind of professional that's going to be able to deal with I mean, if you've got a kid who's smoking so much pot and now they're in full-blown psychosis, it's Mm. way too complicated typically for families to handle on their own. Do you you two still physically go do these? I understand. That I do. But Jack is that does. true? You do. I do. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which I love. I mean, I just, uh, it's a funny thing, but I love it when a family calls and they're in crisis and they think they've tried everything and they don't know what to do. It's yeah. very, very likely that I probably do know what to do. <laughs> and so yeah. it's a great joy to me, frankly, to be able to listen to them, really hear the story, get into it in depth, and then start to lay out a strategy that they can follow. And, you know, I want to point out, too, the other thing that's really important is when to tell people you should not be doing an intervention right now. Okay, so when is that? I mean, you have an ex- example recently where you had a family and you said you're going to have to wait. And they had to wait two months. And the father was furious. Yeah. He won. Jeff said, "It you can't do this right now. Right. There the was circumstances, this, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to be successful. Yeah. I okay. mean, there, I mean, for changing names, places, and everything else, but they wanted to do the intervention on a 22-year young man who already had like two DUIs and almost thrown out of college and, you know, all these other consequences, and he was really falling apart. But the the last DUI had put him into a court-ordered program, outpatient, and the father said, it's not going to be enough. We already know that. We need to do an intervention right now. I said, Mm -hmm. no. Why did I say no? Because he was graduating from college in six weeks. I'm not going to take that away from him. If Even if we had done an intervention, he would have been so furious, he would have gotten nothing out of treatment. So we had to put in a different time frame, and it was driving the parents nuts. Of course, they're... You know, terrified he's going to die. And, I, and they're like, can we, if he has a drink after graduation, can we do it? No, there are going to be graduation parties. It's going to happen. All right. Let's, and so I set up these parameters and. And let's the, remember he wasn't an outpatient program at the time. Right. And yeah. so ultimately we did the intervention. It was successful. He went to treatment, is doing great. 
it, because you needed to wait. It just wasn't the right thing to or, do. Or I'll give you another example. People will call and like their husband or their daughter or somebody, they're in jail, right? <laughs> and they want to give you their credit card. Let's do an intervention. Well, the intervention's happened. You know, we could work with yeah. you on an hourly uh, basis. And but the first thing you want to do is say, I'll bail you out. Uh, but but not you unless gotta, you're going to treatment. You're going to go to treatment right away, and we're going to have the suitcase, and we're going right from jail, right? Jeff did an intervention in a jail once, and the only place was the janitor's closet. The sheriff put them all in the janitor's closet to do it, you know, at the jail because she didn't care. With the sheriff. With the sheriff, yeah. you know? Wow. But the thing about it is, is that, um, you know, you want to say, so the intervention is done. Let's leverage this. Let's leverage it. It's a major negative consequence. This, let's leverage it. But but we can help you figure out what to do moving forward. The don't, jail was a negative consequence. The jail was. Yeah. And so yeah. we can help you move forward. And if they don't go to treatment, well, then we're in a different world again. I know I experienced several bottom moments, mm -hmm. each worse than the last. Mm -hmm. And there is, is there some truth to this sort of window of opportunity when a person is in, you know, is in jail, for example, or has suffered a major consequence that, that, that is the time. It helps. Usually when the family calls, there are major consequences. It's just a sure, given, it makes sense. right? And sometimes right. it's a jumble of a lot of things. Um, what you don't want is for people to hit that bottom without a bounce. Um, and that's mm -hmm. always, you don't want to be an alarmist, but you're walking that tightrope as well. Like this is, mm -hmm. this is a deadly disease. You know, the thing about hitting bottom, like a lot of families get the advice, you just have to let them hit bottom. Bad advice. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The whole, you're loving them to death bullshit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, and the other thing is nobody says, oh, by the way, the whole family hits bottom along with them, mm -hmm. including the smallest children. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just not okay. But there are a lot of bottoms without a bounce. There's jail, death, you know, really bad things happening to people and families. So to answer your question, I mean, it's nice if there's just been a huge consequence and then we do an intervention. It's definitely not necessary. One thing I do try to avoid because, you know, people with addictive disorders will go on the wagon from time to time. Well, I don't want to do the intervention when they're on the wagon. Uh, that's, no, that's not a that's good not moment a good because they'll be like, hey, this is great. Love days. you too. And uh, if you'd done this a month ago, it would have been fine. But I'm doing great now. I'm doing great. I got it under yeah. control. Yeah. There's no urgency there. No, because yeah. in the addict's mind, you have to realize two things are always going on. Always, you know, is one is I have more time. I mean, you can be living in your car. You can be an attorney living in your car. I have more time and I'm still in control. That's what the addiction is always telling the person suffering from the disease. I have more time and I'm in control. Oh, right. Yeah. Even yeah. even as they've just come out of their, you know, sixth overdose where they actually died and they had to be brought back, they're still, you know, for the person who goes through that, they don't really experience anything bad. Well, what right. I like to tell you know, families, so we have a very good friend who uh, was a heroin addict who's got great years of recovery, but he said, you know, overdose isn't bad for the heroin addict. It just feels like you're being immersed in a warm bath. You know, the traumas for the people reviving that. Right. Like maybe, maybe it's a little unpleasant when you come to <laughs> right. and people are bad at you and you know, right, you've got right. the EMTs staring at you, but right. otherwise it's not as traumatic as it is for the people exactly. around. Exactly. Exactly. Anything else you want to mention about the intervention? Because I, I mean, 
I, when I think of intervention, I think about the show, right? Oh, no, like, no, no. That's yeah. the, that's like, you know, somebody told me once addicts love to get high and watch that show. And I say, yes, because that show has taught them a lot of bad behavior in interventions. You know, like it used to be nobody ever walked out of an intervention. Most still don't. It's also just so ex- exploitive. It's oh, like, it is horribly, oh. horribly. I, I, yeah. I've watched it twice because I had to and I both times broke my heart, really. Yeah. Um, but I, I just want to say the thing about it is I want to say to families, you know, the Love First Intervention, it is so loving, not in a very, stru- it's in a very structured way. It's choreographed in a very specific way to be really effective. So many people in recovery that have gone through this type of intervention, they save all the letters from the families. One person mm-hmm. told us, and he must be, I don't know, 13 or 14 years sober. He said, I didn't even know. He said, yeah, it was a love first intervention. He said, and when I have a down day, I pull out those letters still today and read them. And I think it's yeah. the only time in our lives, if you're lucky enough to go through an intervention where the people most important to you tell you in very specific terms a good, a good, how much they love you, how your best characteristics are so generous. You were there to help me. Remember these funny times, person mm-hmm. after person. We don't do that in good times. We don't do know? it in good <laughs> times. I had a family after they did the intervention, they started doing that for people's birthdays, you know? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> And then they Probably put a little up, different. They put the, maybe they a little much. They, yeah. they didn't end with, you know, it ended with cake, not treatment, but then they would put right, the right. letters in like photo albums and give it to them. So, when do, when do yeah. I get the cake intervention? I want that one. I want the cake intervention. But I, it's I was gonna, so funny because my reaction to to this clearly says a lot about my own still issues, even <laughs> in eight years of recovery. I just want to cringe at the vulnerability and intimacy of of the whole like scene like oh, oh yeah God. it's it, you know it's a beautiful thing though but it is very tough i mean in my addiction most people you know we're very good at playing people off against each other and telling different stories to different people so even as the intervention begins and all the most important people in your life are there it's like oh I'm not going to be able to play anybody off. Oh, they're all prepared. Oh, they're talking about. Also, you have to hear these things that they the uh, the things that they love about you when you feel so awful. Oh, I know. And it's it's it's. I mean, in a way, it's killing with kindness, isn't it? Because we're talking about yeah. connection, why we love you, why we care about you, times when we've been proud of you, Ugh. times that you've been there for us. I can barely take it. And then and then yeah. and then we move on from there to saying, you, you know, know, I've come to understand that this is a medical problem. Yeah. It's it's not you. It's a medical problem. Mm-hmm. Requires professional treatment. I know you've got mm-hmm. the problem because of A and B. Move on quickly from that. You would never make these choices for yourself. Right. I'm going to make not a who you are. commitment to walk with you. I'm going to do my own, you know, family side recovery. You know, I'm uh, asking you to get this help. I'm, I'm showing this great picture of what life can be like. And then we go on to Aunt and Mary. Then, and then you always <laughs> yeah. end yeah, yeah, too yeah. with there's always this reflection on the purpose this person has in the world, you know? Mm. So like when I would do interventions, you know, especially it was like a grown child, um, invariably the mother would take me into a room to see the photographs. Here he is, you know, here he is when he's graduating from high school. Here he is on his wedding day. Oh, here's this baby picture because what did she want me to know? I want you to know who this person is. I don't want you to just 
focus on the disease and we don't. In- well, yeah, you wouldn't, but they're right. They're afraid of that. But they're afraid of that. And, and they want you to know this is who we're saving. This is the wonderful person he is or she is. Yeah. And the family is calling out to the person they love instead of the disease. If you go to battle with the disease, as Jeff will always say, the disease owns the brain. You have yeah. to go to the heart because the real person. That's where the battleground is. The yeah. battleground is right here. It's in the heart. The disease uh, does own the brain. And that's why we're going right to the heart. This isn't a negotiation or a logical thing. We're trying to call them back by the power of connection and the power mm-hmm. of love to their more authentic self and let them, you know, take a break. For a lot of people, I mean, this is maybe counterintuitive, but for a lot of people, the intervention gives them permission to stop everything they're doing with work or school or all the things that are falling apart and just go check in somewhere. And they kind of need everybody to say, no, you can do this. We'll cover whatever needs to be covered. Uh, Because for a lot of people, they look at it and say, you know what? It might be great to go to treatment, but there's no way I can do that. Well, you know, when I was doing interventions, I would always have somebody like at the end, the last letter say, you don't have to worry about anything. We've taken care of everything. How many days would we like somebody to say that to us? What if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, I need this? Yeah. But they don't, you know, they can't force people to do an intervention on them. What what can they do as an individual? The answer, answer yeah. to the question is, they've, you know, it depends on do they have no resources? Do they have some resources? Do they, you know, whatever? Because if you if you need treatment, like you may know I need to be medically detoxed. I'm not just going to like walk into AA because I'm going to croak. And uh, so... They're going to, if they have no resources, then they're going to use their state Medicaid. They're going to call the number. They're going to find out where they can go for free. If they've got Mm -hmm. some kind of insurance, you call the number on the back of the card. You find out where can I go? What's going to be covered? If you have Mm -hmm. more resources than that and you can kind of pick where you want to go and maybe you can private pay, then you might call an interventionist or somebody else and get some recommendations and see where you want to go. So it's different depending on what your resource level is. But the point is that the help is pretty much immediately available. And and the first step, if you're the addicted person and you want help now, you've got to reach out to somebody who's in a position to say, yes, you go here with your level of resources. And I think it's really important for families to understand, get some help, people who really know, know on a national level what's out there, what's good, there's a lot of bad treatment out there. There are a lot of people. A lot. Who, oh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot. So can you give some quick hits of like, not this is good or this is bad, but but places to go for the resources that someone that like a trusted sort of uh, traffic cop to say, to point people in the right direction? That's a really hard question um, because there are so many, I, I'll tell you where not to go is online. You know, if you, if you, if you yeah. Google <laughs> and say, you know, I want to get help for addiction now, you'll be served up eight ads and yeah. two organic links, and the organic links may be no good either. You know, when, and so, when people figured out they could make money off of people with this disease, yeah, it's, it's terrible. And then they'll get you on the go, oh, we're usually $50,000, but for you, we'll do it for only 35000 yeah. So There gross. are people yeah. that are just all about getting the money. The thing is, talk to people, you know, and our website. We list some treatment centers. We know low costs are really good. 
Um, there are treatment centers that are low cost that also have scholarship programs. If you don't have any money, talk yeah. to people who are really knowledgeable about what's out there. Call a local treatment center. You may not be able to afford them. Call a big name like a Hazelden or a Karen or a yeah. Origins or because they'll know, help you. They'll help you. Yeah. They know. Yeah. And if they don't know, they'll call people call us. They text us. What's your website? Oh, okay. It's lovefirst, all spelled out, dot net, N-E-T, lovefirst.net. The resources, the free resources and videos and little audio snap trainings, we are dedicated to giving families tons of free information. And they're also um, a starting place for treatment programs. Let's get dig into the structured family recovery approach and and the meetings that you talk about yeah. that you, you you mentioned them but so uh, let me kick it off and then hand it to Deborah Please. because the thing Please. that we're doing now the new edition of love first and the new edition of takes a family are now companion books so okay. when we when we used to do interventions we'd say we're bringing together an intervention team right no more now we're saying we're bringing together a recovery team because an recovery intervention team, team has but- has an expiration date right when we get jeff into treatment we're done okay <laughs> it's over so now we're putting together a recovery team and they go right from intervention to structured family recovery and i'll let deborah take it yeah, from there and Smart. Uh, one question about that it what's the minimum number of people that need to be a part of this for it to be effective Structured family recovery or intervention? Yeah, or like both. can it just be the mom and a kid? Is that enough? We've done it. We would prefer to have that would be more. Hard. It would be. We have done it. I mean, we've done it successfully. We had uh, yeah. a team once. Sometimes I'd say, you know, if there's only one person in your life, man, they're a, they're an important person. And yeah. we have done that. We just had a we just had a team like that recently finish a year, and they had a really positive experience. We tend okay. to say to people, you know branch out a little bit. What about grandparents? I mean, we have found with structured family recovery when a grandparent or an aunt, people like that, just out, just, you know, extended family members. It's so powerful and beautiful. The team that's five years, there's a dad, there's a mom, there are two uncles, there's a really, really good friend, and then there's a recovering person, you know. What and, an amazing opportunity for oh. a family. I mean, I'm just thinking of the, the, you know, a lot of times people's parents are addicted, so they can't be of help. Right. friends. Well, this is the Absolutely. thing. So let me just say this friend that I just listed on the five-year family, his family, he, the two of them met in treatment and his family would okay. have nothing to do with recovery, nothing. And Got so it. when his family, the treatment center recommended structured family recovery, they started doing it. He said, Hey, can I invite this friend from treatment? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. friend said, um, actually have an interview with this family in the book. So that friend said, wow, you know, after they've been doing it for so long, he said, this family, I'm so close to them. And because it's conference mm-hmm. call, I've never seen them in person, but I'm closer to them than my own family. Wow. So you can do interesting things like that, you know, and, sure. um, but and the families, thing about whatever it you is, call family too. Right. However, you know, you family, family isn't necessarily traditionally so it may not defined. Be your biological family. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Okay. The dominant message given to people who love an addicted person, like we've talked about, is step back and kind of let them feel the natural consequences of their behaviors. But you are taking a very different approach, obviously. Can you walk us through the sort of 
action-based approach and how you got there. You don't need to detail every step, but maybe highlight some of the key things about it. People do an intervention. The books are companion books now and defined differently. You know, we're defined differently. It creates a different behavioral expectation, right? I think it gives mm-hmm. families a lot of peace because they're terrified when their loved one's getting out of treatment. So usually we like to, we start the family right away and structure family recovery. The loved one joins when the clinical team decides it's appropriate and they join mm. week three or four so that the family has a chance to be really comfortable with the process. The process is really simple. So I can just walk through it if you want. It's sure, so simple, please. but it's so darn powerful. And yeah. families love it and the addicts love it even more. And I think it's because they're like, wow, I am not on the outside. I'm not the fish out of water. I'm not the black sheep. I belong. I'm just one of them. We're all equal. We're all accepted. We're all loving this. And they, we're all trying for the same they're thing. All trying. When I worked in treatment, addicts would so often say to me early on, how do I get my family to trust me again? This doesn't, mm-hmm. let me tell you. Mm-hmm. But guess mm-hmm. what? The addict can also trust the family, right? Because they're not trustworthy either. So anyway, in saying all that, it just starts out with some, we call it an opening statements, expectations, like you'd have in group therapy, like, you know, because families don't know how to do this, that it's confidential. There's no crosstalk. We don't drop bombs, you know, red light, yellow light, green light. If somebody drops a bomb, you know, it's like, I think that's a red light issue means (laughs) we don't talk about it. Right. So there are all these expectations that are read week in and week out. But the other thing it does is it tells people we're entering this sacred space. We're entering a sacred space. There's a topic for the day. So somebody from the week before has been assigned to get a reading from a 12-step meditation book, like Courage to Change from Al-Anon, Daily Reflections from AA, something from the Hazelden Collection, whatever it is, on that Mm -hmm. topic. Now imagine that you're the family. Imagine you're the addict. Imagine it's your mom. And they take it so seriously. They read every single reading on that topic before they choose. So now they have just gone through Courage to Change and read every single reading on forgiveness, for instance, or on acceptance or on honesty or whatever the topic is, every single reading before they choose the one for their family and they choose just the right one. It matters so much. Talks about why did I choose this reading on honesty? Why did I choose it? And she shares. Everyone just listens. And then you go round robin style. Everybody knows the order for the week and when they read. And you go round robin style. And then everybody shares on that reading that mom chose. Everybody listens to everybody. It's so simple. Then we move into report, discuss, plan. Everybody's like, what went well in your recovery last week? Right? What could be improved? Everyone's talking about themselves. You know, so there are these three questions. What are my goals for next week? And everyone considers themselves in recovery. Yes. So everybody well, is they like have the to, family. They have to, it's part of the process. You have to go to Al Anon. You have to go to Al Anon or Families Anonymous or Naranon if you're the family. And today there's just so many great online Zoom or Call, you know, you don't have to go out if you don't want to. The resources are so broad and wonderful. I, I go to Al Anon meetings in Scotland and Tel Aviv, you know. So, anyway, yeah. um, so re- they love report, discuss, plan. You, I, I thought in the beginning, I don't know if people are going to go for this. Oh my gosh, you can hardly get them to end report, discuss, plan because they love to tell everybody what they're doing and their successes and they love hearing it. And we have three second celebrations. We have a milestone like mom, a one family. I got to tell you the story because I love it. So the son is the recovering person, right? He's just been out of treatment a few weeks. And he says, report, discuss, plan. He goes, 
my mom is burning through the steps. I'm only on step two. So, you know, you get this like great, healthy competition. You know, mom is on step eight. I'm on step two. Oh my, I got to get going. So, you you know, you've got this whole thing going. But when somebody gets to a milestone, like they got a sponsor, we have these great three-second celebrations. And then the brain loves it. The brain loves, and it's a three-second thing, you know. And so from there, you go to these three groups of readings, learn something new. Somebody reads a paragraph, same thing. They reflect on it than everybody else does. Then the second one is about a step generally. So Mm -hmm. let's say it's step three or whatever. Generally, the reading, they're all very intriguing to them. Then everybody shares again. Then somebody else reads the last one, which is working a program, which is just kind of a general thing, you know, and that's supportive, but engaging. And then they all share. And then at the end, there's a short little assignment, really super simple, which always brings them back to the recovery. Why? We're going away someday. Your resources are out in the community. So you're going to do this. You're going to maybe talk about it at a meeting. Then next week, report, discuss, plan, you bring back what you learn. Well, what's cool about this is everybody then benefits from the wisdom that they gained in their own recovery every single week from every single member in the group. And then how do we close with the promises from the big book? So round robin. So powerful. Can you imagine being the recovering person in here and your dad and your mom and your grandmother and your brother, everybody reading the promises. And at the end, you know, I mean the whole, you you know, in unisys, unison. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, when they do the whole thing. But week in, week out, the family shares the promises. It almost takes me to tears every single week that mm-hmm. I hear that. So it's mm-hmm. so simple. It's so simple. I always say it's so simple. Why didn't anyone think of this before? What I'm getting from this is such a more hopeful message than we usually feel or receive around the about, about around families in general. <laughs> I would just say to families that re- regardless of what you think, you know, the end of the road, whatever you think the reality is, um, no matter how you know, disjointed, everything is just go to your library. You don't have to buy Love First. You don't have to buy It Takes a Family. Most libraries have it, although you want the newest editions, but they'll probably get it. I don't even, we don't even care if you buy the book. Go online to lovefirst.net. I read the beginning of the books right there. You just have to listen to it. You don't even have to make that commitment. You don't have to make that big step. Just go to lovefirst.net right on the first page. Just listen to it. You know, it's free because the thing is, I think the worst thing for a family and I'm on the family end is that you lose that person and that's the regret you can never get over. You know, you never want to have to say at three in the morning, what if? At least you know that you've done everything, but for most people, they are going to be successful in getting their loved one help. And that's a great thing. They don't have to be captive Mm -hmm. To the myths of, you know, you have to let him hit bottom or treatment won't work if he doesn't want it or anything like that. I mean, raise the bottom to today. Learn what you can learn. Ask somebody else, would you be willing just to listen to this on a website? Don't say, oh, let's do an intervention. Would you just be willing to learn to listen to this and take that little step and, and, you know, pick the person that's most likely to say yes. So then the two of you ask the next person. Would you like to say, just would you listen to this? It's only going to take you seven and a half minutes. A lot of times there's so much resentment from family members, 
partners about this behavior. And like a lot of what I see is one person in a marriage gets sober, Mm -hmm. the other one doesn't and needs to. Mm -hmm. And there's just so much anger and resentment. And it's very, even though they know what they've been through and what it's like, you still think this isn't my problem. This is your problem. How do you, what's the message? How do you, how do you convince people or get them to see that it, it is the family's problem? It's the reaction because there's no, there's no sense of a solution. So where do you go? If you don't know what to do, the only thing you are left with, this isn't my problem because no matter what anybody says, and it is a disease, but no matter what anybody says, it is difficult to be in a close relationship with an addict. So we start moving away from them. And when we don't have any other problem, our brain just goes to, this is your problem. You know, if we don't have a solution. When you have a solution and you can start with these little teeny weeny steps, you know, so that we get past contempt prior to investigation, you know, do you have seven minutes, right? Do you have seven minutes? You know, I mean, who can say no to seven minutes, right? Right. And so make those little tiny steps because at the end of the day, like that resentment, you know, like they always say, it's like, you know, drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, we can't live with that and it takes a huge toll. But the other thing to me that's the most important is the future, the generations of the future, because this disease is generational. My first editor at Hazelden, when we wrote the first edition of Love First, we were having coffee and he said to me, you know, Deborah, whatever pain we have in our life today, it's probably like 200 years old. And the best thing we can do in life is to end that pain with us. And when it comes to addiction, it's more important than anything. We have to end that pain with us. We know, and if I can end with this, that children, especially who are living in a home with addiction, that they're rapidly developing brains, Harvard, all the neural resources, research that's going on, we change the architecture of their brains. We change who they were meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say now that'll affect you, even your health throughout old age. Oh, and yeah. we, it cannot be the readiness of the addict. The family needs to move forward because the family needs to preserve itself. And it yeah. especially needs to protect small children. I, I, I love that and couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really. This has been a yeah. lot of fun. It's been great. Good. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Yeah. yeah. You both are lovely and it's, this is going to be so, so helpful. I'm, I'm so glad we're going to have it out there as a place to point people. Thank you for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, opportunities to submit questions for AMAs, and invites to join me for members-only events. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want, but it also means we're 100% reliant on you for support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member. You can do this for as little as $5 a month. 
I cannot stress this enough. You could make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Tell me something true.